events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. You're listening to WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, 99.9 FM in Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. A celebration of the life of Amy Van Single will be held this Saturday, October 8th at 2 p.m., at St. Andrew's Lutheran Church, located in 175 Down East Highway in Ellsworth. The public is welcome to attend. Many of you knew Amy as Atomic Mama from Blue Hills Blues. Blue Hill Blues aired for many years, and we miss Amy, and we hope that several people who also miss her will come and join the celebration of her life on Saturday, 2 p.m., October 8th, Saturday, at the St. Andrews Lutheran Church, located at 175 Down East Highway in Ellsworth. Got a couple of seconds to go before 4 o'clock, main currents time. Sunday this afternoon, the tonight will be clear, then patchy fog, low 42. High tomorrow of 70, and patchy fog, then sunny. Tomorrow night, clear, then patchy fog at a low of 50, and patchy fog Friday, then sunny, high of 71. Stay tuned now for main currents. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Wednesday, October 5th, 2016. I'm Amy Brown. As many of our listeners are aware, WERU has a sister station, Radio Sampool, in El Salvador. Our sister station relationship was inspired and encouraged by other sistering relationships with a long history of connecting Maine and El Salvador. Today on Maine Currents, we'll be talking with representatives of those groups here in Maine, and we're also welcoming visitors from El Salvador who work with U.S. El Salvador sister cities and are visiting here today. We'll look at how these connections have developed over the years, how people in both countries have benefited, the current political situation in El Salvador, how people there are viewing the U.S., the upcoming U.S. elections, and more. And we'll also be opening the phone lines for your questions and comments later in the program. But we're going to start. We've got a full house here, and we're going to start by having people go around and introduce themselves, starting with Karen. Hi, I'm Karen Volkhausen. Um, I've been um, on the Bangor Sister City Committee for 23 years, and I'm also on the Mafka El Salvador Sistering Committee for the last 15 years. And thank you, Amy, for having us to talk about our favorite subject. Thanks for joining us. How many times would you estimate you've been to El Salvador? Oh, it's sort of embarrassing. <laughs> about 18, 19 times. Wow. Yeah. Let's move that mic. And we're sharing microphones. If people are used to listening to main currents, you know we often have more people in here than we have microphones. So just bear with us so we can get everybody on. Soma. Hi, um, my name is Ulma Tovar, and I am the U.S. El Salvador Sister Cities Coordinator in El Salvador. And I work um, in El Salvador for, it would, for Sister Cities for almost eight, eight months now. Yeah, thanks Welcome. for having us. Welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Carly, and I'm currently living and volunteering in El Salvador. I'm this year's volunteer with U.S. El Salvador Sister Cities. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And I'm Willie Marquardt. I actually work at WRU, and I'm part of the WRU Radio Sampul Sistering Committee, as well as the Mafka one. And how many times have you been to El Salvador? I've been there six times. Wow. Good afternoon. My name's Dennis Chinoy. I work with the Bangor Kadaske Sister City Project since its inception, and uh, nice to be here. 
Thanks for being here. And we should mention that everyone who's involved with this show today has been to El Salvador at least a few times. John Greenman, our engineer, has as well, and he may be jumping in, and I've been down there twice, first with a MAFCA delegation and the last time on a mining delegation, and uh, as has Meredith DeFrancesco, who did a lot of early reporting from there as well. So we have a lot of connections there. Uh, I don't know how much people know about that, though, so we'll, we're going to talk some more about the connection process and how that has unfolded over the years, and then we'll get into some of the politics happening in El Salvador today. So, Dennis, how did this whole ball get rolling with sistering with places in El Salvador and organizations in El Salvador? Uh, well, it's come to be a long story, actually. we just There was just the 30th anniversary of sistering uh, gathering in El Salvador uh, celebrating that history and uh, so it's even though it's old it's kind of fresh in all of our minds um, basically um, the, the sistering network grew out of um, uh, in the United States at least uh, solidarity networks that were involved with uh, uh, their con out of their concern for uh, US intervention in actually a number of Central American countries back then, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua. Um, and uh, uh, at, uh, towards the, after several years of that, um, one a strategy that was actually proposed in El Salvador um, was a uh, sistering connection between communities in the United States and communities in, um, in El Salvador in order for uh, people at least this side of the border um, to um, have heart-to-heart, uh, head-in-heart relationships with people in Salvadoran communities um, in order that um, they um, learn to care about what happened to ordinary folk in El Salvador. Uh, previously, um, um, there were, you know, kind of sporadic uprisings of indignation when especially heinous human rights violations occurred or massacres or, or assassinations of Jesuits, et cetera. But this was a way to actually have ordinary people on both sides of the border care about each other and care about what happened to them in an ongoing way. That was the strategic um, thought um, on, on the part of uh, uh, Solidarity networks in the United States, and um, so those uh, were born um, in the early, uh, the late '80s, the earliest of them, and, and on into the early '90s. We should mention for listeners that that's when the Civil War was still going on. Right, the Civil War basically started in 1980 and uh, ended in 1992. So this was during wartime uh, that that these. Uh, relationships were um, initiated and uh, maybe I would stop there there's more to say about that but um, um, there was another side to that story in terms of what was going on in um, El Salvador and maybe we can ask Sulma about that I would just say that on, on, the, on the United States side there was a, a, a network formed called uh, US El Salvador sister cities which invited communities that were interested to um, participate in that, and they needed and partnered with uh, a, a Salvadoran network that had Salvadoran communities that were equally interested and equipped to 
uh, participate in those sistering relationships. Yeah, Zuma, would you like to add to that? Yeah, uh, well, as Dennis was saying, uh, sister cities is US El Salvador sister cities is working with uh, our partner organization Cryptes. Cryptes is the Association for Development of Rural Communities in El Salvador, and this association is working with more than 300 communities in El Salvador, rural communities in El Salvador, and most of those communities uh, that we work with and Cryptes work works with, uh, those communities were displaced during the war from, from their community of origin. So um, Cryptes was working with those communities in the refugee camps to take them back to their uh, places of origin. And the international solidarity played an important role during that process of re, uh, population, during the process of repopulation for those communities. So now, after 30 years of being in solidarity with the uh, rural communities of El Salvador, we have been and experienced great achievements uh, in those communities. So for people who might not be completely familiar with the history, at the same time the U.S. was funding and training the right-wing death squads that were behind 85 percent, it's been estimated, of the uh, war crimes that happened during this war. On the ground, you still had people who were willing to accept uh, Americans and uh, North Americans and other people from other countries to do like accompaniment as people were coming back from these refugee camps. And, and that, to me, it seems like a pretty amazing thing that that, that was accepted and, and, and worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Salvadoran commun communities or Salvadoran people know very well that the government of United States, who was sending the, the money to uh, train the military forces in El Salvador, is completely different from the from the people from Uni from the people of United States. Because um, right now, many people may think that yeah, people from United States they uh, hate Latinos, for example. Uh, but um, in our communities, in our organized communities in in El Salvador, uh, we see the people of United States as the ones that are helping us to struggle in in all the problems or in all the um, in the struggles that we have and they are um, visiting us they are motivating our communities to continue um, the struggles and do you think the visits that the delegations from the different places make that that makes a big difference in making the connections I mean it's not just like you're on social media or emailing back and forth or having phone meetings or something. A lot of the people are traveling back and forth and visiting each other's countries. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Having a, when, when a community has um, a delegation from the United States, um, they feel very proud because uh, they have those visitors from other countries that uh, they say that uh, I'm very surprised and I feel I feel very proud of having someone from United States in my in my community they say they they these people from United States they leave all their families there just to to be here and to to live the reality that we are living and they see that other communities that are not organized they don't have those type of visits and that uh, is a motivation for those communities to continue the struggle, such as right now uh, we have seen the, that some communities that are struggling with the sugar, with the monoculture of sugar cane, they see 
uh, or they say that they are, with the international accompaniment, they, they feel very proud and, and brave to stand or to call out the government to stop um, or to prohibit the using of agrochemicals, for example. So it's a, a, it's a great support, just being there, living and seeing the reality of the people. Karen, did you want to say a little bit about how the MAFCA uh, committee got organized sure. and who you partner with in El sure, Salvador? Sure, I'd love to. Oh, well, I had been on the Bangor Committee um, since 1993 and very active. I've been to Kraske several times. It changed my life. It actually did. Um, and Bangor um, hosted a um, woman from Chalatenango, where our sister city is. Um, she is, was the president of CCR, which is a northern branch of Cryptes. She is a farmer, and she came on tour, kind of a area tour, um, and she met with some farmers from Mafka, including my husband, who's a farmer from of Mafka, and they had a really wonderful discussion about the realities of, of small farming, uh, small farmers, small um, in both countries, and came up with the same realities of um, what the problems were and what the solutions were. And Esmeralda, wise woman, said, well, wouldn't it be interesting to have a um, sisterine relationship between farmers? And so that kind of settled in our heads for a bit. And a couple years later, Bangor sponsored an agricultural tour to El Salvador, and we took along um, some MAFCA members, met with CCR and um, another organization called Cordes, um, and discussed this issue, and they um, were very, very, very interested. So we went back to our country. They talked about it for quite a while. We talked about it for quite a while. We talked about it with MAFCA. And um, in 2001, MAFCA unanimously approved the relationship, um, sistering with CCR and Cordes. And Willie, you are, have been elected to represent the WERU and Radio Sempul relationship. What can you say about how that's gone? Well, I could say that I think it started about 11 or 12 years ago. There were some people, some volunteers involved this station. I know Meredith DeFrancisco, Karen Ireland, and a number of other people were meeting. And I know Matt Murphy was wanted to have a sister relationship. He wanted it in Ireland. But... El Salvador appeared <laughs> with a radio station. So that's how we got that started. And I think our first official visit was about 11 years ago, and I was on that delegation. To, it was before I started working at the station. And pretty much what we do is we provide material support and, and money and, and parts, really. And, and it's really similar about what happens there and here. It's a different scale, but, but uh, they're a voice of many voices in, in the community just like we are here. And they have stories about defending when their radio station was threatened by yes. uh, being shut down. They're really inspirational. Yeah, 20 years ago, the, the military came and surrounded the the, uh, the station, and they wanted to take the transmitter away. And I think the people in the community just surrounded the station, and it, and it didn't happen. They were still on the air. Uh, the stories are told about... Uh, hives of bees being used as uh, something to thwart off the police as they were coming to the radio station. I don't know if that's true or not, or if that's a, a rural legend. Dennis Torek. Um, I just wanted to, we'll, we'll get to the hives. <laughs> <laughs> he knows the real scoop. I, I know, yeah, I know the scoop a little bit, but uh, I mean, just to pick up a little bit on 
one thing that Sulema said and one thing that Karen said. The, um, you know, the, the initial, um, it, it's, it was an old story for us already before Central America, uh, you know, back from the Vietnam War, that for people in the United States were really taken aback, you know, to be, for, for uh, such a long-suffering people to be able to distinguish between the people of a country and what its government was doing, and we were forever relieved and surprised because we were not so sure we'd be able to have the same degree of um, tolerance. But that was certainly the case again, um, you know, in, in, in Central America. And initially, you know, the from from the north there, our, our involvement was really just based on a sense of complicity, that we were indignant and alarmed at what was being done to other peoples in our name, and that's really all we knew. And it was on that basis that we thought this would be a really good idea to have that kind of sistering relationship and to, pre to be able to afford the kind of accompaniment that might provide some modicum of protection. But that was the impetus. But following that, um, you know, when we actually had contact and had visits, we really first became aware that that the people in whom we were we were in relation were in communities that were just kind of blew us away. That was the it changed my life comment from Karen is that 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 these are communities that that really have no analog in the United States. They were so organized. They organized as though their lives depended on it because they did. And we just didn't have that experience in this country and people were able to do remarkable things, death defying things, super courageous, sacrificing things that just were out of the league of our experience, whether it came to defending a radio station in the face of military reprisals or any of the other stories that you've heard, whether it's about you know, chasing, chasing away uh, mining company, company operatives by throwing beehives at them, whether it's women surrounding soldiers and making them give up the children they were taking hostage. All of these things were just um, kind of astonishing. And the degree of community organization and spirit and cohesion was something that it turned out uh, we had so much more to learn from these communities than than any help we could really offer. Let me just remind listeners, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. We're talking about U.S. El Salvador, sister cities relationships and sister organizations relationships and sister radio stations relationships. I uh, think that John Greenman wanted to jump in here. Let me tell you who the other guests are we have in the studio, and then we're going to turn it over to John so he can weigh in. Uh, Zulma Tobar is here. She and uh, Carly Roach from the U.S. El Salvador sister cities office in El Salvador are joining us and uh, bundled up here in the cold. <laughs> We're hoping they're not going to freeze before we get to send them back south again. Uh, fortunately, it's not December or January. Uh, Karen Volkhausen is here. She's with the MOFCA committee that has a sistering relationship with CCR, another rural organization in El Salvador. Uh, Dennis Chinoy was just speaking. He's been involved with PICA and with the Sister of Bangor, Sister City relationship with Carrasque, which is a small town in Chalatenango in El Salvador. And Willie Marquat is here from WERU. He's uh, one of us from WERU who 
gone to El Salvador as part of our sistering relationship with Radio Sampool. We'll open the phone lines at 469-0500. If you have any questions, but first let's hear from John Greenman. He's also been down to El Salvador. Just, just once, though. I, I can't even come close to Karen. And I went to Carrasque, and uh, thanks for clarifying, uh, Amy, that Carrasque is in Chalatenango, but Chalatenango is also a town, isn't it? Isn't it? There's a town of Chalatenango, yeah. but so it's a within the, like, their states are called departments, right. and there's the Department of Chalatenango, then there's Chalatenango City within it. So, so yeah. well, I was wondering if uh, someone could comment on uh, Pika's involvement in getting the sister city relationship between Carrasque and Bangor set up because that was a historic thing and that was pretty m- instrumental in getting a lot of people aware of, of, the, of what was going on. And then to follow up on that, what's the possibility of other communities doing this too? Who wants to jump in? Go, Dennis. Well, to answer your first question, um, Pika, uh, which at that time was called Peace in Central America. We've changed acronyms, but uh, we've actually kept the same acronym, but changed names. Now we're Power and Community Alliances. We were actually approached um, by uh, uh, sister, the Sister City Network and asked if we were interested to do that. And the reason we were approached was because uh, we had some degree of organization already based on several years of working in the anti-interventionist movement and they were looking for um, entities on both sides of the border that had enough organizational capacity to be able to sustain a relationship. And what Um, year was that? um, uh, Karen might correct me but I'm just going to close my eyes and, and say 1991 and wonder how off I am. Karen's nodding. But no. it's radio, so we have to tell you that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, Karen's our best historian. <laughs> Karen Volkhausen, would you like to weigh in? You're all right on, Dennis. <laughs> right. Um, so there was, there was that. Um, and in terms of the ability to, and, and um, back then there were actually a number of communities, a, a larger number than the number now, which is roughly, I'm going to close my eyes again and look at Sulma and wonder if there are about 18 remaining communities. 17. There are 17 communities in El El Salvador and 17 communities or committees here in the United States. But yeah, we are seeking for more uh, relationship. Uh And what makes a, I know one of the other uh, organizations that has, there we go. One of the other organizations that has a sistering relationship is another community radio station. Wart has a sister station in El Salvador as well. Um, radio Victoria is, is sistered with a radio station here in the U.S., not in Maine. Um, what makes a good sistering relationship? Because there have to be some that just kind of are name only and others that are more active. What really makes it successful? Maybe uh, Carly or Zuma or both of you have some ideas about that. <laughs> well, um, communication. Well, first, uh, to to find something that is um, like I struggle. Like we in El Salvador are struggling for many things that are also affecting uh, United States or some communities of United States. And also, um, yeah, uh, what makes it successful? What's your question, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh, it's communication and that accompaniment. 
Like, um, if we had that communication and to know what's going on in, their commu in that community in El Salvador and to know what this committee or the community here in, in the United States is doing, um, that uh, makes them stronger and that uh, gives the motivation to both communities or communities to continue or to do the, the struggle in their area. Mm -hmm. Carly, did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I was just thinking about um, how important it is to start forming common ground in that relationship as well, and that's something we were actually talking with Dennis about earlier. Yeah, one of the things, and we'll get into, <coughs> excuse me, some of the politics and some of the uh, issues facing El Salvador. We'll shift gears a little bit here, uh, but let me give the phone number again. If you'd like to join the conversation, if you have questions about El Salvador, if you've been there yourself and you'd like to tell stories, we know we've got some of the sistering committee members out there listening in Radio Land. If you'd like to uh, call in and, and join in, we'd love to hear from you as well. The number is 469 Again, 469-0500 if you're local. The toll-free number is 1-866-625-9378. 1-866-625-9378. Uh, yeah, I wanted to add, um, apart from the common ground, which we can t talk about, just in terms of what makes for successful, um, fertile, sistering relationships, is what Suma said is really about the kind of communication that, um, has depth and longevity and uh, both person-to-person uh, -person and in any other way, whether it's letters or phone communications or visits. You know, the war that precipitated all this ended 24 years ago, and yet we still have strong sistering relationships, and those are built on the kind of um, basically family-like relationship that, that we cultivated or that happened to us all when we spent time in these communities and um, you know so whether it's a war or peace you know whether it's issues that we share in terms of common ground now shared threats like mining or trade issues or climate change or anything else uh, the cement that really holds us together is the history of these relationships that are really in our hearts that's why people are still um, doing this 22 years later. Think of any organization that you may have belonged to 24 years ago, and whether you're a part of that organization now, and why, or why not. Well, that's a good transition into some of these issues. And, and speaking of mining, that's where I wanted to start things off. Uh, back, I don't remember how many years ago, probably close to 10, when we first started hearing about mining in El Salvador, <coughs> excuse me, that was before things had really started up here in Maine, and listeners will be aware of the uh, mining regulation rewrites here in Maine that have just keep rearing their heads over and over again over the last several years. But before all of that came into the picture here in Maine, uh, a few of us had traveled down to El Salvador and been aware of and reporting on what was happening with mining in El Salvador. So it was a good lesson for what to expect. Uh, these multinational companies coming into the uh, country, in El Salvador's case, they would potentially be polluting the last of the drinkable water if they were allowed to go ahead. And the communities in El Salvador have taken uh, 
tried to take local control. The last time I was there, I was on a delegation where we were doing uh, witnessing uh, international observers for one of the votes in one of the towns where the town was passing basically a community ordinance saying no mining here. And people were trying to take control. And also at great personal risk, there were activists who were disappeared, people who were murdered in the fight against mining. Uh, so there, I see that as being a practical exchange of information and uh, how people are doing things there versus how things will play out here. Maybe, Zuma, you can give an update. Uh, Carly, you could probably weigh in, too, on where things stand with mining today. And uh, as we go through any of these issues, if anyone else has any kind of moments that they want to share about practical, uh, hands-on information that was gained and exchanged or anything like that that's, you know, tangible out of the lessons that you've learned in being in a sister relationship with one of the organizations down there. Sure. Yeah, um, it's important that you mentioned the uh, municipality consultations or when the, the people from those communities or municipalities came together to the polls and they were and they had to 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 vote if they wanted uh, mining or not in their communities. And those uh, we have been accompanying those four municipalities during their process of uh, municipal consultations against mining. And those four communities or municipalities, they said, no, we don't want mining. And that's a big victory for the social movement in El Salvador, for the organized communities. And we feel proud, we as a U.S. El Salvador sister cities, because we also been, have been part of this process. Um, probably you have heard about the, the lawsuit against El Salvador that the mining company was um, or had against El Salvador. At the beginning, it was 70, uh, $77 million. And then, but then after some years, they increased the amount of money to $300 million. And um, the court was going to release the, the, the outcome of, the, of this lawsuit in September, but that didn't happen. So we were expecting that the court was going to um, give the release or release the, the outcome at the beginning of October, but uh, we don't have that yet. And there are three possible op outcomes of this uh, lawsuit. The first one is that El Salvador, an impoverished country in Central America, have to pay $300 million. And the second one is that El Salvador has to pay um, a nothing about that, won't pay nothing uh, if the, the court uh, decides in favor of, of the state of El Salvador. And the third one is that uh, El Salvador will pay only uh, what he or what El Salvador has been invested in or, yeah, invested in the lawyers during this process. So we are crossing our fingers to see that um, and hoping that the court will decide in favor of the of El Salvador government because we are an impoverished country. And now this court is through, like, international trade court. This yes. is what people can look forward to with more and more trade agreements. Sure, uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, this is uh, under the World Bank, this court. Um, do you remember the name of the court? ICIST or something. Yeah. Like Center for Investment Settlements. Yeah, the inter International Center for Investment, investment Disputes. Dispute. For solid, 
for solving and investing the disputes. Settlement. Settlement. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so this is one of these tribunals yes. that you hear about with trade agreements where yes. they get to decide if a country tries to protect themselves and a business says, oh, wait, we we're going to make some money and you're stopping us. We uh -huh. don't care if you're, we were going to poison your drinking water, you're preventing us from making money, then right. the country can be sued. Right. El Salvador is the this particular case, which is the Pacific Rim, Previously Pacific Rim, now they sold their shares to Oceania Gold in Australia, but it was a Canadian company. This particular case was really the um, poster child case for the investor state provisions which run through NAFTA and CAFTA and now the TPP, the ability for corporations to sue governments who are doing their best to uh, protect their citizens in terms of whether it's public safety or public health or climate or environmental destruction, and it gives these companies the option to do that. So the very same issues are, uh, are alive and well and, and still in very much contention as over, over, the, over, the, over the current, current issues about, about the TPP. Let me remind listeners, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. We're talking about U.S.-El Salvador sister city relationships, of which we have a few represented here. And we would love to hear from you if you've been part of one of these delegations, if you've been to El Salvador, if you just have questions about how it all works or what the situation is on the ground in El Salvador today, give us a call. The number is 469-0500, 469-0500, or toll-free 866 Six two five nine three seven eight. I think you were in the middle of a thought, Dennis. Did you have something else you were going to add to that? Well, I thought of something while you were talking. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. I can read your body no, language. Right. No, it's just it's just interesting in terms of the history, and it's an interesting example of of ways in which communities on both sides of the border can collaborate over other issues besides war and peace. Like the, this most recent mining case uh, has it had its roots actually back about maybe ten years ago with a different mining company also from Canada called Eau Martinique, um, which was actually prospecting um, um, in, the, in, in our own sister community of Karaske as well as other areas and stuff. And that was uh, very alarming. And um, um, so we knew that the, that the communities would never, ever allow mining in their territories, these were the this this was the soil which they had shed their blood to protect, and defend and repopulate over the last ten years prior to that. So we knew that was not going to happen, um, but that bad things could happen. <laughs> um, and but the mining company didn't know that. They just sent prospectors and they had their pamphlets and their shareholders and their kind of fact sheets. And so one thing that we were able to do, um, you know, from our side was to be able to communicate better with the company, whether it was initiating a dialogue with the president or trying to communicate with the shareholders or sending a representative to a sh an annual shareholder meeting to let people know that um, this was not going to turn out to be a, a very good financial much less moral investment, and it was so. It's a way that each of us could do things to persuade the company that this they really had best back off, and we couldn't. We couldn't have done that 
unless the reality on the ground in El Salvador was so obvious to us and we were so clear and could be so clear to the country. So it was basically, it was the organization of the communities that actually um, repelled the company. Um, my wife and I actually bought a mining share, the only share of any company we ever owned for a dollar back then, and that enabled us to get the uh, annual report the year that O'Martinique decided to call it quits. And they said um, we had encountered some uh, resistance from social movements, and um, on that basis we think it's best to uh, revise our investment portfolio. So that was shareholder speak for we get it. Yeah. Well, before we move on to another topic of current events in El Salvador, we've sort of left hanging what happens if they actually win this lawsuit. What will the impact be in El Salvador? And, and is there any recourse for that? Is there any appeal? You just say, I don't have the money and don't pay it. I mean, they can't completely uh, destructure an entire country's economy, can they? Well, <laughs> that's a very good question. <laughs> well, um, according to the lawyers of the of the state of El Salvador, of El Salvador, they were saying that there was a possibility that the outcome was going to be in favor of um, of the El Salvador state, but and that why was the reason that they delayed the outcome to release the outcome because they were doing some things on the under the table and that uh, this mining company was going to negotiate with the government of Un of El Salvador. But um, if if the company of if the mining company um, is uh, receives the the favor or is or if the, the 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 outcome of the lawsuit is in favor of the mining company, well, <laughs> our communities will be displaced. And um, but I think that that uh, we have seen through the history that El Salvador communities of El Salvador have been. Um, very brave to organize and and stop this. So um, we are we don't have a law that prohibits um, mining in El Salvador, but we are working. We are still uh, demanding, calling out the government. So I think that if that happened, our people, El Salvadoran people, won't allow mining in El Salvador. It sounds like a lot of the sister city committees would not allow it to happen either. <coughs> I see nods, people forgetting they're on the radio. <laughs> well, we all do our best. These are big companies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, it, right. it does seem like something that would um, probably prompt some solidarity from some of the other committees, though, right? Karen's nodding. I would say so. I think the committees will be right out there um, doing whatever they can, um, pressuring whoever they can to see if this, what could happen. Right, and, and this is also not just a, an issue for U.S. El Salvador sister cities. This is such an um, infamous case that it would elicit the collaboration and solidarity of environmental groups everywhere yeah. across, the, across the world. There is widespread international attention on this, and e that was even before El Salvador's um, water scarcity problem, which mining would um, amplify. Scott from Bangor, welcome to Maine Currents. Hi, thank you for uh, taking my call. Um, I was just wondering, and I just kind of tuned in, um, 
if you haven't already gone over the subject of uh, if there's a pulse on the public health implications, uh, particularly with the mining. I know you mentioned um, contamination with public drinking sources. Is there a way to monitor what's going on with the public health issue? Um, if you could just kind of address that or say or disregard it completely but no i think we have people here who can address that thank you for your call scott and let me just give the phone number if anybody else has any questions it's 469-0500 if you'd like to join us here on main currents today again 469-0500 we have a couple of people here who are medical professionals who may have some thoughts about that karen volkov well i know um just starting way back there was a mine in east of el salvador that is now defunct and the soil and water is dead um, the, the people cannot drink the waters from the river. You can look at the border countries of Honduras and Guatemala and see the same dead zones, um, reported rashes and infections and health problems. So it is known. There's also a question, um, and I think Sulma can talk more to this. Um, there is a huge um, degree of chronic kidney disease among people in El Salvador, and there is a question if mining has something to do with that as well. And we did witness people in the mining delegation that I was on uh, two years ago now uh, with one of the closed mines, and there's water that's just this unnatural fluorescent green color. And people still have to use it. It's not like you have a choice of somewhere else to get your water from. So people are using it to bathe and to do laundry, so they're being exposed to whatever tailings are still there from that mine. Suma. Yeah, uh, currently in El Salvador, we don't have uh, mine. Mining is not active in El Salvador currently. Um, and the mine that Karen was talking about is in San Sebastian, and the one that you mentioned that you have been there, Amy. And yeah, you can see the river of that water is orange. And that's due to the chemicals that the mining corporation uh, used when they were exploiting the mine there to separate gold from earth and from, from the rock. So people still use that water because in El Salvador we are facing water scarcity. And um, so people have to use that. And about the effects of agrochemicals, using the agrochemicals or the chemicals, in, in this case in mining, um, in this community in San Sebastian, most people now are suffering kidney failure, and that's due to the chemicals that have been or were used in that mine. And the Minister of Health, the current Minister of Health, is not taking action on that, is not paying too much attention to this problem. There are many people dying of kidney failure in El Salvador, so I'm, uh, it, but it is not clear yet what what is the main cause of this, because right now the uh, sugar cane monoculture has increased a lot, and those in those fields, more than 51 agrochemicals are used during the process of um, uh, sugar cane production. And uh, in 2014, the Minister of Health uh, presented a report where said that more than or around 500 to 800 people were dying in hospitals due to kidney failure. But as I said, this is not clear ye yet because um, some some people are saying that uh, kidney failure is caused by the agrochemicals being used and the chemicals that were used in mining uh, or in mines. And some other people are saying that uh, this is due to labor, um, um, what is it called? Um, 
because people are working uh, in the fields on, under the sun without enough shade, enough water to drink. So uh, during um, this may be a problem or, or caused by labor conditions. And right now, as I said, the, the government or the Minister of Health is not paying too much attention to this problem. And there are no enough scientific research on this issue. But there are many cases of kidney failure. I can tell you that. This is Dennis Chinoy. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, well, first of all, just to answer Scott's question in a more simple way, which maybe that w would be obvious, but is worth stating, is that the absence of potable drinking water anywhere, especially in a place with scarcity, is 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 the is a public health issue, and it's rampant, and it's exacerbated by the environmental climatic change in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. Um, but more specifically about the chronic kidney, it, it, while chronic kidney disease, while the precise etiology of that is still yet to be determined, there's some fairly good evidence that there is actually a convergence of factors, not only in El Salvador but throughout the world, that this, the chronic, chronic kidney disease is epidemic in many agricultural and tropical regions throughout the world, whether it's rice workers or um, sugarcane workers or elsewhere. And um, there's, there's some fairly compelling evidence that it's a combination of um, um, acid mine drainage water, that where people are drinking um, acid water that's contaminated, and so mining is implicated. There's some fairly good evidence that Roundup, which is the um, um, one of the herbicides made by Monsanto, is uh, certainly implicated in many of these agricultural places. It's a common denominator. What people might not know about Roundup is before it was a, um, an agricultural product, it was a chemical product um, used to um, uh, clean metal pipes. It's a chelating agent, so it basically takes metal and cleanses it from pipes, which is good if you're a pipe. It's not so good if you're a kidney. And so the combination <coughs> of dehydration and acid water and an agrochemical that predisposes to heavy metal poisoning in the kidney um, is that it's not a, a watertight verdict, as it were. But there's lots of information to suggest that's what's going on. So mining and, and uh, sugarcane, definitely two issues to be watching in El Salvador. Uh, this summer, shifting gears a little bit, this summer it was announced that the uh, Supreme Court in El Salvador had struck down a provision that was put into place shortly after the war ended in 1993, I think it was put into place, that uh, granted amnesty to everyone involved in the Civil War for any war crimes. And there were some major, major war crimes in the Civil War. There were some serious massacres and atrocities that happened. Uh, independent boards found that 85% of those were attributable to the U.S.-funded and trained uh, right-wing uh, military, only 5% to the um, to the left, to the people that are sometimes called the guerrillas, the FMLN. And I don't know who the other 10% were. Maybe they were undetermined. But at any rate, it would seem, at least on the surface, that getting uh, the Supreme Court decision to do away with that amnesty might be a good thing so that the people, because right now 
in a country the size roughly of Massachusetts, you've got people who are still alive, who fought on both sides, and some people who maybe committed these atrocities and these massacres, living side by side with the victims. Uh, so maybe that would be a step toward justice and healing, but it's actually raised real mixed feelings among many people in the country. So, Zuma, can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah, um, Yeah. we were very happy. We were very happy when we heard about uh, the, um, that... Um, Repeal. Yeah, the repealing of the amnesty law in El Salvador because of many injustices and many massacres that happened in El Salvador that killed civilians. and. But then we knew that um, knowing that something behind that was happening or was going to happen, and it, it is happening now in El Salvador. And, um, and like, we as uh, social movements, as, as organized communities in El Salvador, since we knew that, we had to start working on that and be, be ready to wait what's going to be next. Like, for example, the people of the Supreme Court that decided to re that repeal this, this law, they are doing their campaigns now in those communities that the guerrillas or the current president now is a former guerrilla. So uh, they are doing the, cam the campaign against the, the government of El Salvador. And uh, now we have to, um, to take action, like uh, organize communities, teach them that the, the amnesty law is something good for, for our um, rights and for our justice in El Salvador, but we have to pay attention who is using the, the, this rep, the, the repeal of the, of the law. Like right now, uh, I don't know if you have seen that the former government or president of El Salvador is being persecuted and he, and he um, um, asked or applied for an as asylum in Nicaragua. And yeah, and, and he has been accused of corruption in El Salvador, but what about the four previous governments or president of El Salvador that everyone know that they stole the money and of the people? And so we have to see what's happening and, and what they are doing with the law, how they are manipulating those laws to um, probably, who knows, we, we are very worried in, in El Salvador that, um, in, that Demo our democracy can be damaged, like in Brazil, for example. Right, with a soft coup there. Yes. And, and part of that fear is because the, in the hands of the right, uh, who want to get the left-wing president who's currently in power out of, the, out of power, they may apply it toward him, even though those, the FMLN crimes were estimated to be only 5% of yeah. what happened, of the total right. amount. Just a quick comment for those people in the United States who may believe that our own Supreme Court sometimes may have a political agenda. Um, this is an interesting teaching point about the, one of the differences <laughs> between the U.S. government and ostensible separation of powers and that of in El Salvador. Because in El Salvador, as Suma said, you have the, the, a much more actively politicized Supreme Court, which after it makes a decision, fans out and has the Supreme Court justices themselves exhorting communities to denounce previous FMLN leaders. It's a whole different uh, scale. Form of corruption. 
We just have uh, about 10 minutes left. I want to make sure we get to uh, the reaction in El Salvador to the U.S. presidential campaigns on immigration. And uh, I just want to remind listeners, again, you're listening to Main Currents on WERU, and we're talking about U.S. El Salvador sister cities and sister organizations that we've made connections with between here in Maine and in El Salvador. If you have questions for any of our guests, some of them are here uh, from Maine, and we also have a, two special guests with us from El Salvador. You have just a few minutes left to give us a call at 469-0500. So, so yeah, uh, picking, picking up from there... What are you hearing? Are, do people care? Are people watching it? How much interest is there in the U.S. election? And how are people responding to uh, how the candidates are talking about immigration? Well, <laughs> Zuma. yeah, um, well, we are very scared <laughs> about these elections. Um, many people are saying, well, we know that this is going to be kind of complicated uh, election and or the outcome of the election, but most of the people, if you go to any community that you may may think that they don't know about what's happening in other countries or they don't know about what's happening in the United States, you go and they can ask you, hey, what do you think about Donald Trump or what do you think about uh, Hillary Clinton? So uh, people are, are watching the news and they uh, last time uh, for the debate. Uh, there were many people uh, watching the debate, and um, yeah, people are worried about that. I don't know, Carly, if you have uh, been in a community, if you have heard something from from the community about the election. Yeah, and I can definitely second what you're saying um, about the folks in El Salvador having that fear because when, as soon as people find out that I'm from the United States, they'll say, well, what do you think about this election? What do you think about Donald Trump? Um, and they definitely communicate that. They share that fear that I do as far as Trump being elected and his rhetoric around the Latino population. Hmm. Anyone else have any, any thoughts about about the outcome of this election, how it might impact things in El Salvador? Well, I, mean, I guess one, just to, to follow up on that particular fear that you <coughs> outlined, you know, when, when a candidate basically talks about all Mexicans being, or many Mexicans being murderers and rapists, et cetera, uh, other Central American populations know that language could just as easily be directed at them and um, and that it focuses on a ongoing misconception about what immigration from those countries is really about. It's still being pictured, being portrayed as hordes of delinquents trying to climb a fence to uh, get U.S. jobs and get benefits. Um, this is obviously not what's going on. These are death-defying uh, trips that people are taking at the risk of their own lives and personal safety. And the reason for it is that this is a matter of forced emigration. It's not a matter of coming to immigrate to get some kind of special candy in the United States. People don't really get that, and they're certainly not being told that story this this election actually by either by either candidate um, and um, 
you know, the other half of that is that many of the policies and of our own trade policies that have made um, rural life um, quite impossible in Mexico and Central American countries um, is part of the impetus for people who can't, for farmers who can't survive, who do their best to take care of their own families. So that's a story that's not being told um, this election cycle, for sure. Well, we have about five minutes left to the program. John Greenman, yeah. did you want to jump in? Yeah, just, Dennis, uh, clarify a little bit. You said forced uh, emigration, forced uh, people are being forced to go north across the border. And does that have to do with the economy? Does that have to do with people sending money back to the towns and villages where they came from? Remittances. Mm -hmm. Well, remittances are involved. That is that people, um, when they they get here, they basically send the money that they make back to to their families. I I think the right, the, 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 the fundamental right that people would like is the right to not have to do emigrate. That. Right. They are not interested in emigrating. They'd like to not emigrate. They would like to stay in their own countries, in their own communities, in their own culture, in their own language. But the standpoint, the, the word forced really hit me. It's forced because of circumstances, not because they're being prodded. That's right. It's forced by the economy, and in many cases, it's forced by um, violence and gang culture, in El Sa- which has taken root in El Salvador and elsewhere. It's involuntary, I guess I'd say. Yeah, I mean, not that far after a war, and you've got a lot of, uh, had a culture of impunity. That's one of the arguments about the mm-hmm. whole amnesty thing was that people, you know, are people are still there walking the streets who committed atrocities. So that's not a great note to leave things on. We want to get back to solidarity. So I want to go around the table as we're wrapping up and have each of you say a little bit about um, uh what the best things are about the sistering relationships that you have or anything else that you want to share in terms of memories just take a couple minutes and uh, of your trips to El Salvador and uh, also if you want to talk about what you're going to be doing uh, both Zuma and uh, Carly up here in the states for the next couple weeks so uh, I want to start on this side with Karen Volkhausen. Well a moment of grace for me and the real meaning of solidarity came to me on my first trip to Karaske when um, person after person, I was from the country that supported the war at a million dollars a day, and person after person came up to me and gave me a hug and said, thank you for being there because we wouldn't be here if you hadn't been there. Yeah, Um, solidarity, yeah, solidarity is something great that all human being has to experience. And I am a former scholarship recipient of a program that, uh, a scholarship program of US El Salvador sister cities in my community. So I can say that I am the fruit or the outcome of this relationship or in the development of each community that we are working in. So um, we thank everybody in this table and everybody in, in the world that is in solidarity with other communities for and or accompanying the struggle in each part or in each community. Thank you. Carly. Yeah, I would just like to say that during my time in El Salvador as a volunteer, it my my time as a volunteer with US El Salvador Sister Cities has been like being in the school of solidarity. <laughs> and I think that's because the folks who the folks in El Salvador, they don't just talk about solidarity, they live it and they breathe it and that's such a beautiful thing. Mhm. Thank you. Willie Marquette. Yeah, solidarity is the word that 
I mean, the first time I went to El Salvador, I was never the same. But I went there just seeing how people there work and just us being there. And, I mean, I work for Sistering beyond here and, and I'm involved in the national level and I've been an employee of El Salvador Sister Cities as well, so I know a lot about how this organization works and it's great. So if anybody wants to support us. And how do people get in touch since you're the one that brought it up? Well, they can they can look at our Facebook page, I guess, and, and uh, we have... Uh, we have a P.O. Box 632451, and it's in Nacogdoches, Texas. You can just contact the station. We'll give you that information. El Salvador Solidarity.org. Okay. Nobody will remember that P.O. Box. But <laughs> And Dennis Chinoy, you get the last word. Great. I would just say it's great for lo- those of us in Maine to have three sistering sisters together that's really unusual and it's really special and it's a it's a form of uh, intrastate solidarity and friendship as well we're really lucky to have it great well thank you all very much for being with me today appreciate it and uh we're out of time so again my guests today were zulma tobar and uh carly roach from u.s el salvador sister cities they're both based in El Salvador, Karen Volkhausen from the Mofka Sistering Committee, Dennis Chinoy from PICA and the Bangor Sister City Committee with, uh, they sister with Karaske in Chalatenango, and Willie Marquat from WERU's Sistering uh, Committee with Radio Sampool. He's also, as he mentioned, uh, been involved with U.S. El Salvador Sister Cities as a staff person. John Greenman engineered today's show. I'm Amy Brown. Join me here every Wednesday at 4 for Main Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. Next week, our multi-partisan panel of area residents will once again be here, and we will be joined by Emily Kane during half of the program and hopefully someone from Bruce, Bruce Poliquin's campaign for the other half of the camp, uh, show so that we can ask them some questions. So keep it tuned here and keep it tuned here now for Democracy Now!, which is coming up next, and then jazz straight ahead with Larry Stahlberg here on community radio station WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Thanks for listening. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. The programming that you are enjoying is made possible by financial contributions from WERU listeners. Each year, more and more of our supporters become sustaining members of WERU by having their membership contribution automatically deducted from their debit or credit card each month. Sustaining memberships are a win-win benefiting both you and WERU. You can contribute the amount you choose to WERU over time through manageable monthly payments and the station saves on the paper and mailing costs associated with renewal letters. What's more, sustaining memberships mean WERU can rely on a predictable source of monthly income to help us keep providing great independent community radio. Visit WERU.org to become a WERU sustaining member or call 469-6600 